Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada and however you have found our podcast we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. So glad you guys are here or if you're joining us online. And I, I, got a, I got a quick question here for you. Have you guys ever had a conversation with someone about like, what would you do if, right? I'm, I'm a, I would assume we all have had like, what would you do if like you got like, if you had that car, right? If you saw like a super sweet car that you really liked, what would you do if, what would you do if you got given a home, right? You see those like home lotteries. What would you do if you won that house? Or what would you do if you won the lottery, right? What would you do if you, if that happened to you? Because there's something that happens when you receive something big kind of on that scale. That's like the next question, right? It's like, what are you going to do with it? So I had a conversation like this once with a cousin who, that I have who lives in the States. And in the States, like our lotteries are a joke compared to what the numbers get up to in the States. They have one called the Powerball, and it can get up to a billion dollars. Yes, with a B, not an M. A billion dollars. So I was down there visiting my cousin. And he and him and I were talking, and obviously I couldn't win it because I'm not from there. But we're like, what would you do? Like, what would you do with a billion dollars? So he's sharing all this stuff. And then he says something to me that I thought was kind of crazy. He's like, hey, if I ever won the billion dollars, I would then put my, some of my closest friends on, like, my payroll. And I would subsidize their incomes. And I was like, in my head right away, I'm like, are you nuts? Like, are you bananas? Like, why would you, like, why would you do that? But then he explained, he's like, when you get launched into, like, such a tax bracket and such a way of living, it's like you have access to go and do things that, like, your friends aren't capable of doing unless you free them up to do that. So he's like, if I want to just go golf 18 holes on a Wednesday in the Bahamas, uh, they can't do that because they have to, like, work. But if I subsidize their income, he's like, then I can do some of these really cool things with the really cool people that I have have in my life. So after he explained it that way, I was like, okay, that does make a little bit more sense. And now I was really hoping he was crazy and crazy enough to make me one of those people if he won the lottery, which he didn't, um, unfortunately, right? No, that's okay. But all of this to say, what does this have to do with our message this morning? Well, I don't want to sound cliche, but the truth of the matter is we have received and been given an inheritance far greater and far beyond what even a billion dollars could purchase for us. So much greater. And so that's what I want to challenge us with this morning is when we have received that, are we sitting there, standing back, looking, assessing our lives and saying, what am I doing with it? What am I going to do with what I have received, with what I have inherited? Because this is exactly where our writer in the book of Hebrews is taking the conversation this morning. Right now, our conversation in Hebrews is about to take a big shift from where it has been for the bulk of the first 10 chapters. You see, and, and if you were here the last number of Sundays, especially chapters 7, 8, 9, and leaking into 10, it's been very theologically heavy, right? And that's actually been the bulk of Hebrews so far, is that our author is writing this letter, and he sets out with the objective of using the Old Testament to explain, defend, and share how Jesus has come and fulfilled the Old Testament, done something better than the Old Testament laws, has ushered in a new covenant for the people. 
And he's trying to explain this to primarily Hebrews, Israelites, or Jewish people. So those would be like the three titles that you would use to define this people group. So he used the Old Testament to say, hey, look, Jesus has done something greater. And he's unpacked it with detail and a lot of theology so far in this series. But this morning, there's about to become a shift where in a way, what he's going to do is he's going to stop and he's go, hey, if you have believed in the things that I was explaining in these first nine chapters, now this is what it's going to look like practically in our lives. This is what it's going to mean. This is what we should do. We should do these things now as a result of this. One commentator I was reading, he said, right now, here, Hebrews is now going to switch and go from creed to conduct. It's going to jump from, hey, I believe this, to, hey, now what I believe is causing me to live this kind of a way. So if you believe in Jesus, this kind of the question is like, what should come next? Because this is what our author is going to talk about. What comes next? What are some first steps? So if you are here this morning and you find yourself and consider yourself to be somewhat new to the faith, I hope and I pray that this is a very practical message for you. That this is a very practical message where you can listen to it and go, hey, these are some things that I should be doing because this is what our author is saying. And if you are here this morning and you've walked with Jesus for maybe longer than that, you maybe don't consider yourself new to the faith, heck, I'll say this. If you are here this morning and you are on stage preaching, my hope is this, that we will stop, we will be honest, and we will humbly ask ourselves, I have been given something so great. What am I doing with it? What are we doing with it? How are we walking it out? So we know that our author is switching gears here in these verses because of the very first word we're going to read in our section of scripture this morning, and that is the word, therefore. I will never forget, I forget most of what I learned at college, but one thing I never forgot is one of my teachers said, when you see the word therefore, you ask what it's there for. And this word in our scriptures this morning, this is a transition word. This is the word that is saying, okay, because of what I just said, therefore, this is what it's going to look like being played out in our lives. If you believe what I've said in the previous nine chapters, Perhaps you will do the following. So let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a couple red ones under the seats in front of you. So grab a Bible, open it up. Hebrews chapter 10, we're doing verses 19 to 25 this morning. Therefore, there it is right there. Brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So, That's our passage this morning, and I don't know if you caught that, but when you get to verse 19, you should really take a massive breath because it is one huge run-on sentence, right? Like, it's, I think, 19 to 22. That's all one sentence. He's just like, comma, keep it going, comma, keep it going. And what he's doing, our author here, is very, very briefly, as he's continually done throughout this book, is he's really briefly touching on and highlighting a lot of the things that he really had been driving home in more detail in those first nine chapters, right? And he's saying, hey, because of what Jesus has done, this is what he says, now we can enter into the most holy place, into the place that was known as the holy of holies. 
Now, if you are just watching this sermon as a one-off or you're visiting this morning, I'm going to explain because you might be there and be like, what? I don't, what does that mean? Right? Like that could be confusing and that's okay. I'm going to explain to you exactly what our author is describing here when he says that Jesus has provided a way for us to enter into the Holy of Holies. But if you've been here for our sermon series in Hebrews so far, I want to ask you, for those of you who have been attending, what does the Holy of Holies represent? Does anyone remember? What does it represent? The presence of God. Thank you to the one person who has been here paying attention and attentive. Yes, I should get you a treat after. I have a box of toys. For, no, I'm joking. That would be terrible. That would be terrible. I wouldn't do that. Don't worry. Um, so, yes, God's presence, that is what the Holy of Holies ultimately is representing. It is representing the presence of the most holy God. And here's the thing, because we need to know the, the contrast that there is. So if you're here and you don't understand, this is what I want to draw out for you, is this huge contrast between what our author just described compared to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, this place, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence rested, only one person could ever go in to that room and only once a year. Like, that is it. Only one person. And now our author is saying, yeah, but because of Jesus, we can walk in. And guess what? We can walk in boldly and we can walk in confidently into God's presence. This offer, if you were growing up, raised in the Old Testament, this would have blown your mind. I've actually tried to like fathom how could they have even wrapped their minds around this. Because this wasn't really an offer. Like being in God's presence wasn't on the table for the average Israelite person. And if they knew anything about the Day of Atonement, so that's the one day of the year where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and was in God's presence, if they knew anything about how that went down, here's what they knew. He didn't do it boldly. He didn't do it confidently. He did it with trepidation. He did it with fear. He did it very calculatedly. He did it with ceremony and sacrifice. He didn't just whip the curtain open and be like, it's that day. He, it was even said he had bells in the bottom of his robe so that they could hear, because no one else, like there, you weren't peeking, right? Like you weren't even like watching the high priest. I mean, like, is he still moving? He had bells in the bottom of his robe, it says, so that when he moved, they could hear him moving. And then if he like stopped moving, there was a rope around his ankle so they could pull him back out. That, nothing about that sounds like he walked into God's presence boldly. And here our author is saying, yeah, but Jesus has done something so fully, so completely, that you and me can walk into God's presence boldly and with confidence. And once again, like I said, that wasn't an option for the average Israelite person. And, and I would say, I don't know your family trees, but I, I, maybe there are. But like, I'll use myself as an example. I am not of Jewish descent. So I definitely couldn't, back in the Old Testament days, have ever went into the Holy of Holies. Actually, one of the commentators I was reading, he drew this out so powerfully and beautifully, I thought, um, he wrote this, it's kind of like historical fiction, so all of the facts, all the details, they are historically accurate from Scripture, but he wrote the story of what it would have been like for someone from another tribe, so not from the tribe of Israel, from the tribe of Brightkrites. Okay, so someone from the tribe of Brightkrites who's walking through the desert and comes upon the Israelite encampment and he sees it, maybe from a slightly elevated position and he looks down and what would have happened is the tabernacle, the building where God's presence was that would later be built into a temple, it was sitting there. And maybe it was dusky out and he could see the incense floating aromatically into the air and the lamps that were always lit were flickering and it was drawing him. And he saw that all 12 tribes of Israel were camped specifically in a circle around this tabernacle. So this man would walk in to the tribes and he would meet someone and he would say, because he's feeling so drawn, and we'd go, how might I ever enter into that place? 
And almost mockingly, but very honestly, one of the Israelite people says to him, well, are you, are you an Israelite? Are you a fellow Israelite? To which he would say, no, I am not. And the Israelite would respond by saying, well, the only way you could do it would be to go back in time and to be born again. You would have to be born again. Because the only way anyone could go into God's presence was to be born an Israelite. And then not just born an Israelite, but born specifically from the house and the tribe of Levi. So you had to be Levitical. And then, not only that, you had to not just be born from any Levi, you had to be the firstborn of the high priest. And then, and only then, could you go once and only once a year and enter into God's presence. And in contradiction to all of this, our author says, but now we enter boldly and confidently. And why? Why can we move into that place? Because our hearts, we have been sprinkled and cleansed and our bodies have been washed pure by Jesus' death and resurrection, by how he atoned for our sins on the cross. And I love I love this picture because I think, once again, if you were reading this and you grew up as a Hebrew, you couldn't, not over, like you couldn't overlook what's being said here. Because if you once again knew what the high priest said to do and did on that day of atonement when he went into God's presence, you would know this, that when he went in there, he had to cleanse himself. He had to wash and be ceremonial clean before he went in. And then when he walked in, when he went through that curtain into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, right? You all know what that is, seen Indiana Jones? We've all, we all know what the Ark of the Covenant is. Well, it was on the Ark in between the cherubim, those like angel-like figures. That's where God's presence physically rested with the people. That's where it sat. And on this day, when the high priest would walk in after a ceremonial cleansing, he would then sprinkle blood and put blood on to the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence rested. And now, in contrast, our author is saying, oh, no longer does that process take place on a gold ark. It takes place on your body, in your heart. Why? Because God's presence has left that room. It has left that tent. It has left that temple. And now it sits on the hearts and in the lives of those who believe. You have been sprinkled and cleansed. This is what it would have been going through the Hebrews' minds. And I also love this because I don't know if you remember when we were talking the last time we preached in Hebrews. So just in chapter 9, I believe, our author also describes what was physically in the ark. What sat inside the ark, there was the stone tablets that Moses had received the law on, a jar of manna, and then Aaron's staff that had budded. That is what was inside the ark. And I can't help but believe that as the Israelite and the Hebrew people would read this and know that it's them who has been sprinkled with blood, not the ark, they'd have to stop and think, and guess what? God said he was going to do. Just like the stone tablet sat inside that chest, God said, I'm going to write my laws on your hearts inside of our chests. I'm going to give you manna, my word, to sustain you as your daily bread. And just like I took Aaron's nasty, old, stinky, dead rod that he walked with, and I gave it new life, and it budded and it sprung forth, I do the same in your hearts and in your lives. This is the picture that our author is drawing out here. This is what he is saying that we have, that because of Jesus, we can embrace and live with all of these things as our reality. So now he's transitioning in to saying, as a result of this truth, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Now, before we get into, there's going to be four things we're going to cover. Before we get into those, I just want to say this. If you are here this morning and you are feeling, you are beating yourself up and you're feeling like, I can't. I feel so low. I feel so bad. No one knows the type of person that I am. I can't come that confidently before the Lord. Can I just tell you something? Quit giving yourself so much credit. Because you cannot outdo the grace of God. It is not about what you have done. It's about what Christ has done for you. And it's greater. 
So we should know that we can come boldly into the presence of our king. Do not let you focusing, and I would say you believing the lies of the enemy as he continually tries to wipe your nose in your own filth, do not get so distracted by that that you let it overshadow the glory of our king. We can come boldly before our king. And so as we do, what we are told is that we need to draw near and hold fast. So how should what Jesus has done and what Jesus has provided impact our lives? Like I said, we're going to look at four ways it impacts our lives. Hebrews tells us we should walk out our faith. And we, we learn this through the words in these verses. Let us. Let us. Now, some translations that you may be reading will say, let us. It will repeat that phrase in these, in these section of verses three times. Some translations will repeat it four times. Now, I studied this passage with my NIV translation, which uses it four times. So that's what we're going to do. We are going to look at four let us statements that are in these passages where our author is saying, as a result of all this, let us do this. Let us move in this direction. So to tell you quickly, the four let us, I have to be very careful how I say that before it sounds like I'm saying lettuce. Uh, not like the vegetable. Let, pause, us. The four statements are this. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold on to hope. Let us spur one another on. And I think all three of those are always in every translation. And the fourth one that varies is when it would say, let us not give up meeting. So some of your translations might not have the fourth one there, but mine did. So these are the four things that we're going to look at and kind of take as guides for, hey, I believe in Jesus. I place my faith in him. What is next? So number one, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and in full assurance of faith. Now, remembering the context of this letter, our author is writing to people who are facing trials and difficulties. They are facing such persecution that some of them are now evacuating their faith in Jesus and going back to the Old Testament. They're returning to the temple. They're returning to the sacrificial system because of what they are facing and they are up against. And so our author, knowing this, he's like, so what should be the first thing that we should be doing? He says, so let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God. Because here's what he knows, here's what he wants them to get to understand is that we face trials and difficulties in our lives. We face seasons that we go through. We face issues with relationships. We face issues with what's going on with culture, with what's happening with our economy. But at the very center, at the core of every trial that we are ever going to face should sit the question, is our relationship with God on track? Because how our relationship with God is, that is going to have an immediate impact and influence on how we handle and discern the situations that we're facing. So he's starting off by saying, hey, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're going to come up against, number one, first and foremost, you have your faith in Jesus. Continue to draw even nearer to him constantly and do so with a sincere heart. We've all heard about those people and different individuals who in their Christian walk have endured you know, major, major tragedies and horrible things, and they've walked with such joy and peace and confidence and love and self-control. And if you've ever wondered how were they capable of doing this, it's because they were drawing near to God. Because at the very end of the day, they were able to understand this. If we actually make the number one thing in our lives, the number one, 
is actually to get closer to God, here's what can happen. When you face a trial or a season that kind of prompts you to lean into him a little bit more than you ever have before, and the result of that trial and season is the building up of your faith, the strengthening of your character, the developing of perseverance, and you becoming more whole, guess what? Trials suck, but you still win. You are winning because you are ultimately always getting pushed a little bit closer to where your heart should always be, and that is drawing near to God and doing it with sincerity. Drawing near to him with sincerity. This is something that I personally was kind of challenged with. It says that we should draw near to God with sincere hearts. Now, Hearts in the Bible actually represents like the full spectrum of the human emotion, nature, and understanding. So it says heart, but it also would mean like heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And what our author is telling us to is to lean into God with the fullness of all that we are. With the fullness of all, everything that we can. This is his first step. He's like, hey, Draw near to him with every single thing that you have and make sure your heart is sincere. And like I said, I was challenged by that this week. So sometimes in the evenings when I have time off, I will go back to old sermons that I've preached and I will edit them down to like smaller clips and then just share those on different social media platforms. And I was editing one from our Exodus series. And as I was listening to it, I was struck by something that I never even picked up on when I originally prepared this message. And I was talking in the messages, sharing about when Abraham would leave, when God would call him to the promised land. If you know that, God says, hey, I'm going to give you a land. And he calls Abraham to leave all of his family and everything that he knew at this point in his life. And he has to leave. And God doesn't even tell him where it is, right? So he's somewhat just wandering aimlessly, being like, is it where it is? It's like a radar detector. Like, here, God, here, God, here. And so he's looking for this land God is leading him to. That would take a lot of faith, right? And in my mind, I always read that story as like, okay, and then when he gets to the promised land, like that's going to be like, hey, I got the thing I've been waiting for. But then he gets there, and, he's, and, and God's like, this is the land. And it's occupied by lots of people. I personally, with my thinking, I'd be frustrated. I'd be like, this is not what I pictured in my head. Like I pictured it vacant. I picture it easy to move into, like move in ready, home, and it's occupied by people. And, and my, what God was teaching me was the truth that like he was leading Abraham to another season where he was just going to need to go even deeper in his faith with the Lord. And I thought originally that's frustrating, but I started to realize this last week that God was doing that because that is what he's always after. That is what God is always wanting. Yes, he's leading us towards things. He's leading us into things. But ultimately, he always wants to lead us to those things, but closer into relationship with himself. And I was challenged to stop this week, to step back and go, Lord, I'm believing for things. I'm asking for things. I want you to do these things in my life. But am I going to, when I get that thing, treat you like an Uber driver, say thanks for the lift, and get out of the car? Or am Am I going to be like Moses and stop and say, I will not go unless you go before me. I will not go unless your presence is with me. We need to check the sincerity of our hearts. Do we want the things of God or do we just want God? That is what we need to discern, to try and fight to discern in our lives because I was challenged this week to stop and say, Lord, I don't, I don't want that. Yes, I'll be honest, I want the blessings that he has in store for me, but I don't want those to ever overshadow you. I want to get those things, and I hope that they are going to just lead me more, of, to have more of you, into a more full relationship with you. This is what our author is saying. Let us draw near to God with sincere hearts. Number two, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Now, i got to be honest, I hate that translation. Like, unswervingly? What kind of, like, 
Put your hand up if you, not quoting this passage, used the word unswervingly in a sentence this past week. Yeah, and if you put your hand up, I, like, without, like, with unswerving confidence, know you're lying. Because, like, that's not a word that we use. So I like what other translations will say. Uh, most translations, I believe, will actually say, let us hold firm. Let us hold firm to the hope that we profess. It's giving this sense, like the grip that we should be putting on the hope that we profess. It's like, let us batten down the hatches. Let us cling to it with all that we have. Let us hold firm to the hope that we profess because we have our hope as an anchor for our souls and our hope is here and now and it's living today. And that is more than a lot of people on this planet can actually say. Did you know that there was a professor at New York University and he asked some 3,000 people a question. He said, what are you living for? And 93% of them put down answers that were describing they were just enduring today because they were hoping for something greater in the future. They were hoping for a better job. They were hoping to finish school. They were hoping for a raise or hoping to pay off this thing or get to this place. 93% of them were living, hoping to, in, to, hoping to walk into a hope that wasn't guaranteed. And our Bible tells us that we have our hope as an anchor for our souls, real, living, and active today. Yes, we can do both. God is still calling us. We're still hoping for his return. We're still hoping for a resurrection. We're still hoping for all of these things that he has promised and that are coming for us in the future. But at the same time, as we journey through our lives, through our relationships with the Lord, as we grow, as we move in the direction God wants us to take, we also move with an anchor because no wise sailor would ever go on a journey without one. Because the storms are going to come, the winds will come, and we know that even as we move towards hope, we can be anchored in hope today. Let us hold on to our hope. Let us cling to it. Now, I understand that some of you might be here and just thinking to yourself, yeah, but I'm, I'm struggling with faith this morning, right? I'm in a season and I feel like I might not have strong enough faith to endure, to get through. I will just say this. Sometimes for myself, when I am starting to think like my faith is wavering, I mean, I'm not walking away from Jesus, right? Like I'm not. What I'm struggling to do is just be able to picture how he's going to pull it off. Right? I start to feel like my faith wavers just because I can't fully map out how he is going to do something miraculous. But at the end of the day, I still believe he could do something. So if you're feeling like, hey, uh, my faith is wavering a little bit because you can't see anything but darkness... I will just say this, if you, if you don't want to word it that way, I'm going to word it in a way you all have something. I don't even need to know you personally. Every single one of you in this room and watching online, you can do this. You can be stubborn. You can be stubborn. So we should hold on to the hope that we profess. We should have a stubborn grip and clench on the hope that Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do, that he is not a liar. We should have a stubborn clench on the fact that even if all we see is the ocean, there is a chance he's going to part it. Even if all we see is a desert and we thirst, he can make water come from rocks. Even if all we see is a wall that we can't scale, that our arrows will bounce off of, he can make it crumble in an instant. Be stubborn. Hold on. He's not a liar. Your breakthrough will come. We need to hold on to the hope that we have. And I love that it says, because he is faithful. 
right? Like, how great is it that it's not contingent on my faithfulness, like that God's going to work? I would let him end me down if it was like, hey, I'm only going to function if you're really faithful. But like, I suck and I'm not. Luckily, it's by his faithfulness. We hold on tightly to the faith we profess. And you know what we should do is we should help others do the same along the way. Bringing us to our third let us this morning. Consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I want to take a moment for us to try and comprehend the magnitude of what our author is telling us right now. So the wording, the wording is spur on. Other ways it's sometimes put is stir up, incite, or provoke. But the Greek word that's being used here, we actually directly translate an English word from it. And it's none of the ones that I just mentioned. It's actually an English word called paroxysm. Paroxysm. Has anyone ever heard that word before? And don't feel bad, I had never heard that word before until this last week. Well, it's a, it's a medical term. It's an, paroxysm is an English word. It's primarily used as a medical term. And this is what it refers to. A fit, an attack, or a sudden increase of symptoms. This is what our author is saying we should do. I, I should provoke you in such a way that you have a fit or an attack of love and good deeds. Like, can you even imagine? Like, when is the last time you felt completely provoked to love? I can tell you the last time I felt provoked to punch someone in the face. But I don't remember the last time I felt provoked to love. And there's something here where our author is saying we can do that. In each other's lives, we can actually provoke one another to love and good deeds. Like, you know when you're getting provoked, when someone's like toying with you, and you get to that point where you're almost at your breaking point, and you're starting to warn them? Like, you do that one more time. Like, could you imagine being so provoked to love that it's like, if you say that one more time, I am going to pay for you and your wife to go out for dinner, and I'm going to babysit your kids every weekend for a month, because I just can't take it anymore. Like, could you imagine being provoked on that level towards love and good deeds? Yet somehow our author is saying, this is what we should do. This is what we can aspire for. I really love the message translation actually words it this way. It says, let's see, I love this, let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out. Let's see how inventive we can be. You know, I'm going to share a couple ways I think we can provoke others right now. And this isn't on the list, but I honestly thought about it as we were worshiping this morning. This is going to be one that we're going to add to a number of things we're going to look at to say, how can we provoke others? And I'll just say this. You can provoke others by using the gifts that God has given you. Because did that not happen this morning during worship? I don't know about you, but I saw a worship team, a worship leader come up here, use their gifts to point me to Jesus. And I will tell you this morning, I was provoked. I was provoked to tears. I was provoked with passion. I was provoked with love for my Savior because the gifts that they were using was to provoke all of us to a closer relationship with him. That's one of the ways we can provoke is by using the gifts that God has given us. We should also be inventive, as the message translation says. But step number one, I believe, it tells us right here in this verse is this, is that we do it by considering others. How do we do this? We do it by getting outside of ourselves, looking at the lives of those around us in our community, in our homes, and finding ways that we can love and serve them. John Piper wrote this quote on this section of scripture talking about how invigorating and life-fulfilling and life-bringing it can be as a Christian when you dedicate, you make it a daily practice to be looking for ways to serve and provoke others. This is what he says, and I love this. He says, this is a reason for living that is focused enough to be practical and big enough to last a lifetime. 
We can do this every single day. This is a reason for living that is focused enough to be practical and big enough to last a lifetime. We want to build each other up. So a couple quick ways I think we can do this. One, I think we can do this from just our example, from the way that we live our lives. Yes, it's heightened through the gifts, but just our lifestyle is an example. How many, show of hands, how many of you if you know and knew who Billy Graham was, were provoked to want to walk closer to Jesus because of the testimony of that man's life. How many of you? Yeah. The testimony of our lives and our character can provoke and draw others towards the Lord. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, yeah, absolutely, Billy, for sure. But that analogy falls short, Ross, because guess what? I ain't no Billy Graham. Well, let me tell you this. You're wrong and you are. Because the reality of life is this. In someone's life, that's exactly who you are. In someone's life, in your circle, you are the voice of hope from God to them. You are the character and the profession of faith that they are looking at. You are the example representing evangelicalism and faith in Jesus Christ in someone's life. Your name might not be Billy Graham, but you are preaching continually to someone in your life. And the way you live and your example can provoke them to want to draw closer to Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian who loves Jesus and you make eye contact with other humans, you are on Jesus' marketing team. Whether you like it or not, and the way that we act and the way that we conduct ourselves here in the valley, you know what it's going to do? It is going to be a representation of people who regularly attend DPC, of Christians in the valley as a whole, as the church as a whole here, as Christians in North America, Christians around the world, and ultimately, and most importantly, it's going to be how people view Jesus Christ. And we can live lives that will provoke people to draw closer to Jesus like Billy Graham, or we can live lives like I did because I was the youngest of three kids and I spent most of my life defining and refining the art of provoking um, to the point where my siblings wanted to punch me. We could go either way. Actually, one time my sister, we were at home and I got her, I provoked her so well while she was ironing and she came across the ironing board to smack me I dodged it because I'm awesome. And she knocked the iron off face down, and there was a mark in our carpet downstairs for like 10 years, a sign of my provoking. Like it was just a roadmap right there. It was not good. But our lives can provoke. The testimony of our works, of God's work in our lives, I'll just say this really quickly. I heard two separate testimonies in the last week from people in our congregation, and let me tell you, it provoked me. It provoked me with gratitude for what God had done in their lives. And you want to know what else it did? It provoked me to love them more deeply as I heard about what they had been through and what God had done and how he had drawn them near. Share your testimony. Because no one can argue with the living, breathing testimony that you are of God's work in your life. Another way we can do it is just simply through encouragement, through calling out good works in people, calling out their strengths, right? Finding ways to encourage them. I find wives can sometimes be really, really good at this, at finding ways to provoke their husbands to do things that they might not normally want to do. Like, I'll just make up a situation if my wife came home and was just like, go get the groceries out of the truck, I would like probably wouldn't provoke me so much. Maybe more out of fear. Um, but if my wife comes home and she's just like, ooh, boy, when you carry all eight bags in at once, dang. I'm going to be provoked to carry some groceries real quick. But we can call out strengths in others verbally do this another quick one i'm going to jump through them quickly guys seek forgiveness and be peacemakers 
as far as it is within your ability, seek forgiveness and be peacemakers, especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ. When someone has ever come to me and said, I'm so sorry for what I did, I have been so provoked to love and good deeds. There's one more. I'm going to share it at the very end of our service uh, when we wrap up. But our fourth let us, our fourth one this morning is to let us not giving up meeting. Now, our author is writing this because the people who were reading this letter would have obviously had friends who had paused, who had stopped, who had were no longer meeting anymore. And he's saying, no, we need to do this. I don't want to go off on a tangent on this too much, but I just want to make it very clear. Scripture makes it so clear. We are not meant, designed, or intended to be islands unto ourselves. And if you are not in a regular community meeting with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and growing closer, you are on shaky ground. I am telling you that honestly. I am telling you that hopefully lovingly. And I will also say this. I'm not even talking about coming to DPC. If you want to come here, we'll have you. I would love to have you. I'm just talking about even getting together with friends on a Wednesday to read scripture and pray. We need to be in community with one another. We need to be growing there was a survey done in 2017 on why people do and do not attend church. Now, this was done in America, but I would just say this. If anything, if the statistics were the same in Canada, which I doubt they would be, they'd be worse. And out of all of the people uh, who said they do not attend church at all, or maybe they attend once or twice a year, it is because they said this. They practice their faith in other ways. If that is you, I just want to say this as lovingly as I can. If that is you, if you are convinced that you practice your faith other ways, will you please just reread these portions of Scripture again? Because what our author is saying is that that is not how we practice our faith. We do it in community. We are called to do it in community and in relationship with one another. So will you please find a group where you can get into a circle where you can know people and become known and grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Where you can find people in your life where you get the opportunity to try and find inventive ways to provoke them to love and good works. And then guess what? You're going to come to a day where you need that yourself. And you will have a built-in support system that can help you carry on. We are designed to be in relationship. And you know what? If you do want to, I'll just say this. If you do want to talk about it just specifically in terms of a church, and you're sitting there going, I haven't found one that I like yet, well, guess what? If the first two flavors of ice cream I ever tried were Tiger Tiger and Rum and Raisin, I would probably think I don't like ice cream. But eventually I found cookie dough. Keep looking. If you value your faith, if you are in it for the long haul, find a community and commit. And I'll also tell you this. You aren't going to find a perfect church. They're all going to have their flaws. But guess what? You're going to fit in perfect because you're not perfect either. Find a community and commit to it. We are called to be in community. This is what Jesus wants it's the reason why he said, Father, they will know, the world will know God has sent me because of the love that they are going to have for one another. Scripture says these three are going to remain faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Guess what? You actually can exercise faith and hope on your own, but you can never really have love outside of community. We need to be in community serving one another. Like the old adage says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, you need to go together. So what should come next for those who profess Jesus? Just summarizing our four. We should let us draw near to God in sincerity, hold on unswervingly, consider others, spur them on, and do not give up meeting. Do you want to know what I actually truly believe our author was building out here through all four of these? 
This is what I honestly believe, is I believe that as I was studying this week, I couldn't help but see how he's drawing out the truth of what Jesus said when he was asked, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus would say to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So draw near to God. Love him with a sincere heart, with the fullness of everything that you have. Hold on. Then it says, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. This is what we are called to do. This is what we need. And church, this is what we want to do this morning. Because I don't know every single one of you. I don't know what season you are in. But I have zero doubt in my mind that there might be someone here this morning who needs spurring on who needs some provoking, who needs some building up. And here's the thing. Those other three things, I can't force you to do them. I can't make you draw near to God on your own with a sincere heart. I can't make you hold on unswervingly in seasons. I can't force you to come here on a regular basis. But guess what? You're here right now. So what I'm going to do, what we're going to do, is I'm going to try my best to create a space and an opportunity for you that if you sense in yourself, I I need to be built up. I need to walk alongside someone in community. We're going to have an opportunity right now for you to come and do that. Where I can do it, not just from the stage telling you this is what we can do. I want to get off the stage. I want to get next to you and I want to do it the best that I can. So I want to invite the worship team to come back up this morning. I'm wrapping up this portion of our service And as they do, I want to invite a couple other people, leaders from our church who I've asked to come. And if you are here this morning and you want prayer, you want to be built up, we want to pray for you. We want to do everything that we can to build you up, to encourage you, to, if it's possible, provoke you towards love and good works this morning. We're going to sing this worship song. We're going to pray for anyone who feels they need prayer. So if you are here this morning, we're going to worship. Come forward. Don't be scared. Come forward with faith. Come forward and receive hope. Come forward and be encouraged and built up and know that you came here this morning and you know you're not alone. Let's worship the Lord together. Thank you guys so much for coming and worshiping with us this morning. I'm going to stay up here for a little while, though. If there's anyone else who would like some prayer this morning, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.